fast along with Peter, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words that bring us from death to life. In fact, you are the living word yourself. And if we would live, we must live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, speak to us through your word this morning. Equip us, give us understanding, help us. Lord, confront where you need confront. Comfort where you need comfort, we pray. Holy Spirit, you know how to minister to every and all the diverse needs in this room. And so we pray you have your way with us this morning. Have your way, O Lord, we pray. Through your word, you have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we get ready to turn to God's word this morning, uh, we want to say another word of welcome to any of you who are visiting. Uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. Um, if you are visiting and you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, if you just raise your hands, Miss Carol and Sister Kanika and others will be happy to bring your Bible. There's brother here in the middle, Kanika. Uh, keep your hands up so they can see you. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we invite you to take that one. Let that be our gift to you. Uh, use it in your home. Use it as you pray. Uh, if you don't yet know much about the Bible or know much about God and His Son, Jesus, let me invite you to turn to uh, a place like the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew and just begin reading there uh, and ask the Lord to, to show you more of Himself, to teach you more of Himself. But we will be glad for that to be our gift to you. Uh, I want to, before we turn to the sermon this morning, I want to thank those of you too, uh, the many of you who prayed for Chrissy and I while we were away in the UK this past week and sent us notes of encouragement and the like. We were borne up by your prayers. Um, we had the privilege of visiting good friends up in the north of England in a town called Rotherham, uh, which used to be... Um, uh, sort of his economy was built on the mines and things of that sort. And when the mines were closed, it's become a fairly tough kind of part of England, a sort of fairly tough city uh, to live and to work in. So we had the privilege of visiting friends there and preaching uh, at their church there. And we went down to the south of England for a conference of evangelical pastors from about 600 churches uh, in England and um, had the... Sorry? No, 600 churches. Yeah. Uh, and had the privilege of preaching there. Um, Christy did a couple of workshops. I think I spoke seven times in 48 hours. Um, so I'm a little spit. I'm tapped out. Um, but your prayers carried me along and the saints seemed to be encouraged. It's good to be home and in our own bed. So thank you for that. Everybody got a Bible and made their way to Isaiah chapter five is yet? Isaiah chapter five. To turn to Isaiah 5, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you suppose that God has any complaint against his people? Let me go a step further. Do you think there's anything that God now threatens to judge his church for? Some people have a difficult time imagining God would judge the church. After all, they say God has saved the church from his judgment and his wrath, and that's true. So in what sense would God now judge them? 
Other people have a difficult time imagining God would judge the church because they don't like any talk of God punishing anyone. It's the idea of punishment itself that they dislike. So consequently, they have no perception of the justice of God. Or they think only of God as unjust himself for holding anyone accountable, for judging them. Still, other people may have too general a reason in mind for God complaining against his people or judging the church. They may rightly perceive that the church lacks holiness or justice or love, but they yet haven't thought through the specificity of things, the the ways the church expresses that lack of holiness or lack of justice or lack of love. They're pointing in the right direction, but not at anything in particular. One of the great causes of ineffectiveness in the Christian church is the faulty belief that God will not chastise his children. There exists in the minds of most Christians the idea that God is basically a permissive parent. And that thought is so widespread that there's barely any trembling in the church at the thought of judgment. That false thought is so strong that Christians would dare believe that a holy God would identify with them despite their enjoyment of unholiness. Christians may be so deluded as to think that the God who is love would merely shrug at their hatred and animosity toward their brothers and sisters. We have grown so accustomed to the message of forgiveness that some automatically assume forgiveness even when they are the perpetrators of injustice and unforgiveness themselves. We're in this state of things because our ideas of God's justice, if we think about his justice at all, are applied only to non-Christians or are applied to the church only in vague and general terms. But when God brings a charge against his people, he tends to make specific mention of their sins. When he finds a disease, he doesn't say, you're sick. He says, you have diverticulitis. There's a particularity, a specificity that comes with this charge. If we were picking one charge against God's people based on Isaiah chapter 5, it would be the charge of injustice and unrighteousness. I'm no prophet, nor the son of a prophet. But in my opinion, that would be God's overwhelming charge against his church today. Chapter 5 spells out that charge for us in more specific terms in the history and the life of Israel. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, these things were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the age has come. God has a message here, not just about ancient Israel, but for today's church as well. Here's the main idea. God expects his people to bear the fruit of justice and righteousness. God expects his people to bear the fruit of justice and righteousness. If you're taking notes this morning, we want to chase that main idea with three thoughts based on chapter 5 of Isaiah. Number one, bad fruit 
bad fruit is unnatural for God's people. Bad fruit is unnatural for God's people. Number two, bad fruit will blind those who eat it. Bad fruit will blind those who eat it. And number three, bad fruit brings bad consequences. Bad fruit brings bad consequences. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It should not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. And a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, at the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. <coughs> Bad fruit natural for God's people. That's what we see in the song that opens this chapter. Here in verses 1 and 2. It's called a love song, but it's got a, a twist to it, doesn't it? It starts out happy. The beloved of the song is God. You notice there, a vineyard on a very fertile hill. It's a location that should lead to a, a lot of growth. Verse 2 tells us God did everything in that vineyard to prepare for a really wonderful crop. See there, he dug it, he cleared the stones, he didn't use just any old seeds, he planted it, notice there, with choice vines. He built a watchtower there. A watchtower would have been used for the, for the owner of the vineyard to guard the vineyard against uh, animals or against you know, others who would steal the, the produce. He, he's planning to live in that vineyard and to watch over it. He planned to use the wine vat to crush the grapes and to, to make a vintage of wine. All was in place. Notice there how it ends in verse 2. So he looked for it to yield grapes. There's this expectation there. But a surprising thing happened. 
Despite all the preparation, the provision, and the protection, the vine produced, notice there, wild grapes. The, the wild grapes are unnatural given all of the cultivation that's gone into this vineyard. Verses 3 and 4, the Lord calls Jerusalem and Judah to judge between him and his vineyard. Which one was right? Which one was wrong? The Lord makes his complaint in verse 4. You see it there? What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why I look for it to yield grapes? Why did it, why did it yield wild grapes? The Lord speaks again in verses 5 and 6. Because of the unnatural fruit, the Lord plans to destroy the vineyard. The hedge and the wall, which were made for protection, they will be torn down. Wild animals will eat and trample the vine. The Lord himself will waste the vine by refusing to prune it or even to water it with the rain. And verse 7 gives us the interpretation of the song, doesn't it? Notice there, Isaiah 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel, as God's people, had received all of God's attending, special, caring favor. Just like an owner of a vineyard preparing to plant a very choice vine, Israel had, had been planted by God to be his people to grow and to bear fruit. And here specifically, verse 7, the fruit of justice and righteousness. And despite all of God's care and all of God's provision, it's strikingly unnatural that they bear grapes that are not cultivated, but wild, perhaps sour, unfit for the making of wine. It's simple, beloved. When God provides, we should produce. We should bear fruit. The entire nation of Israel has grown wild. I like what J.C. Ryle says about them. He says, a, a saint, in air quotes, a saint in whom nothing can be seen but worldliness or sin is a kind of monster not recognized in the Bible. These saints have become monstrous for their lack of fruit. Now, fruit bearing is an integral part of knowing God. Think about the gospel. When the gospel is first preached in Matthew 3, verse 8, Luke 3, verse 8, when John the Baptist is on the scene and he begins to preach about the coming kingdom of God, what's the first thing he says? Repent and what? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, turn away from your sin and produce a lifestyle now that really goes along with the fact that you have turned from sin to God. And that fruit bearing doesn't just start at the, or stop at the initiation of the Christian life or relationship with God. In fact, the entire Christian life, the Bible tells us, is meant to be marked by fruit bearing. So if you want to, keep your finger in Isaiah 5, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verses 17 to 20, Jesus is picking up on this very imagery of, of plants and fruit bearing. So he writes there in Matthew 7, verse 17, 
Every healthy tree does what? Bears what? Good fruit. But the diseased tree bears what? Bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them, the true people of God from the false, by their fruits. <coughs> God not only requires fruit at repentance and, and fruit as the sort of character of our lives, but God is invested in our fruit bearing to such an extent that this is how he designs to bring himself glory. AC did a li- lovely job reading the scripture for us this morning. Did you catch John 15, verse 8? John writes there the Lord's words when he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, fruit bearing has this double effect in the world. It brings glory to God, and it brings us assurance of our, our, our Christian faith, that we really are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 5 shows us that God's old covenant people were diseased trees because they produced bad fruit. If, if they were healthy, then the only fruit they would have produced would have been what? Good fruit. But because they produce wild grapes, their vineyard is in danger of judgment. And it's no wonder then that when Jesus is on the scene, he often uses parables about Israel being a vineyard, being taken away and destroyed. Luke 13, verses 6 to 9. You remember that remarkable parable of Jesus and the fig tree? It says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Verse 7 of Luke 13. And he said to the wine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The vine dresser answered him, sir, let it alone this year also till I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. In that parable, we get this insistence of God on his vineyard bearing fruit and his willingness to judge those false plants that don't bear fruit and also at the same time, this patience of God in providing, digging around it, fertilizing it, and expecting one more year that fruit will be born. But beloved, God will not always be patient. God will not always delay his accounting. God has a day set when all the accounts will be due, when the reckoning will begin at the household of God. It's a very sober reality for all individuals and all churches who claim to be God's people. We must bear fruit consistent with a new nature, or we will be cut down and burned consistent with the sin nature. We must bear fruit. Now, the fruit God specifies in this text are justice and righteousness. It's the same issue God called them to address in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, 
Justice and righteousness were to be the evidence of their genuine repentance in Isaiah 1, verse 27. In Isaiah 3, two chapters later, they still had not learned their lesson since God had rebuked them in Isaiah 3 for devouring the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses and crushing his people by grinding the face of the poor. That's Isaiah 3, 14. The wild grapes the Lord found were Notice there in Isaiah 5, verse 7, the wild grapes are named. They were bloodshed and outcry. In the Hebrew, there's an interesting play on words happening in the text that doesn't come through in the English. In Hebrew, bloodshed sounds a lot like justice. And the word for outcry sounds a lot like righteousness. It's as if Israel keeps offering up copies, but not the real thing. I mean, God wanted Louie or Fendi or Burberry or something. They kept coming home with them knockoffs from the swap meet, right? It's as if God is saying to Israel, you have a form of godliness, but you deny the power and the reality of it. They're bringing forth this unnatural fruit for people who are known as God's vineyard. And that expectation, as we've seen, of God's people bearing fruit continues right on into the age of the new covenant church. And so the question becomes, in what ways today might the church be guilty of sounding like righteousness and justice, but bringing forth or at least standing by with bloodshed and outcry? Those would be our wild grapes. I mean, let's just replay the last three to five years. And the things we've given witness to in the last three to five years, consider the digital parade of injustice that has been on all of our screens. For three years, video after video, we've watched police killings of unarmed African Americans in all kinds of situations, in all kinds of places, at all ages, 12-year-old boys and 50-year-old men, male and female, those needing mental health treatment and those needing to be arrested, those complying and those resisting. Though the particulars of cases may vary, overall we've seen a steady stream of injustice. Or consider the sexual assault allegations we've witnessed over this same period. Allegations intensifying lately from celebrities like Bill Cosby to sitting elected officials to say nothing of the untold number of unreported cases that go on in the country. Sexual assault happens everywhere from the apartment next door to the college campus down the street, in taxpayer-funded government offices to the church-funded pastor's study. A steady stream of injustice against women. Or consider the last couple of decades even of child sex abuse scandal in both the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches. We've seen the Vatican simply reassign priests. And we've seen groups like Sovereign Grace Ministries implode. We've seen some abusers convicted and sentenced, while others have quietly moved on. We've seen victims silenced, once by an indifferent public, and secondly, by people with agendas of their own who use the victims for their own agendas. We're left with figuring out how to respond as God's people in this steady stream of injustice. And the question God has for his people is, what kind of fruit are you bearing? 
with regard to justice and righteousness? Are you turning my vineyard into a winery for my glory? Or are you producing wild grapes contrary to my nature and my kingdom? There are significant differences between Israel and the church. Israel was a theocratic kingdom. That means their government was actually to be ruled by God and his word. That's not the case. Well, it is the case with the church, but it's not the case with our current sort of political setting. Because Israel's kings were God's shepherds in the Old Testament, there should have been from the kings the ability to use the state to enforce God's word. That's not the case with the United States or any particular country today. There are no theocratic kingdoms anymore. So this makes things more complex for the church. But what is simple and true is that the church has the same responsibility for bearing the fruit of justice and righteousness. The church still must do the matters, the weightier matters of the law, which Jesus defines in Matthew 23 and 23 as justice and mercy and faithfulness. There's no erasing of that responsibility in the new covenant. If anything, there is the deepening of that responsibility because of how much more has been provided for us in Christ, the true vine. The church needs to desperately pray that the Lord would give us grace to obey Isaiah 117. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And can I just exhort us this morning as a church family that Isaiah 117 begins with the command to learn to do good. This ain't something we're just instinctively and naturally good at. We must be instructed. And a great many of us have come from churches that give no emphasis to justice and righteousness except when they're talking about it in terms of justification through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is to flatten the Bible's teaching. The Bible's teaching is much more round and full than that. Yes, we must be justified through faith in Christ and by God's grace or else we perish in God's judgment. But the man who is justified must go on to be a just man. The woman who is justified must go on to be a just woman. The child who discovers the justification of God, even as a five-year-old or four-year-old or seven-year-old through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, must be taught and groomed and raised to live a life of justice and righteousness and integrity before the Lord their God. Most of us, self-included, have spent the vast years of our discipleship being utterly untaught this part of the Bible. We must learn to do justice. We must learn to correct oppression. We must learn to bring justice to the widows and the orphans. The first step for us is, I think, the bulk of us, if you think you're an exception to this, praise be to God. But for the bulk of us, the first step is to humbly admit we've not been taught the whole counsel of God on this point. We've got some scripture to search. We've got some repentance and some deeds to bring forth. We need the help of God's spirit. And beloved, many of you I know to be passionate about these matters of justice and righteousness. 
Let me offer a particular word of exhortation to, to us who have that passion. We're also going to have to learn to be patient with those who ain't where we at. So not only must we assume about ourselves that we ain't there yet, we've got some learning to do. We're going to have to assume about others that they need the same patience from God that we need it and extend it and learn together as a church. We're just a little over two years old and God's gotten us off to a good start. But there's a lot of growth yet and there's a lot of work yet and there's a lot of fruit bearing yet. If we would hear God's word here in Isaiah 5, not as a condemnation, but a commendation to go on to keep on bearing fruit. It's unnatural for God's people to bear bad fruit. Even the bad fruit of silence and indifference. We must bear the good fruit of righteousness and justice. And let's pray for each other and encourage each other in that. Which brings us to our second point. Not only is bad fruit unnatural for God's people, but bad fruit blinds those who taste it. That's what we see in the series of woes that begin in verse 8. There's six of them. You know, as you're reading your Old Testament or even the New Testament, and a prophet begins to speak, and they begin their prophecy with the word woe, they are warning against God's judgment. They're saying, watch out, judgment is coming, and here there are six such woe statements. And what I want to suggest to you is that with each of those statements, it's like walking into a darker and darker room with shades on until you're utterly blind and have no vision. That's the problem with sin. It, it blinds us and it keeps us spiritually blinded for as long as we're involved in it. And so there, there are six things that they're blind to. Number one, they're blind to their neighbors. See it there in verse 8? Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. As we saw, Jerusalem and Judah were all about bigger houses and bigger fields. They built so many that there was no more room. They wanted to notice there, dwell alone in the midst of the land. In other words, each wealthy person wanted it all for themselves. There's a greed here, a covetousness that's driving this. Their, their neighbors, especially the, the poor neighbors who could not afford big homes, were, were steadily being squeezed out as bigger extensions were built on bigger homes. They became blind to their neighbors' basic need for shelter. And in that blindness, there's no neighbor love in them. I love the way Chrysostom wrote this or, or, or put this. He says, covetous men, if they could, would willingly take the sun from the poor. And that's what's happening in this text. It's just taking more and more from the poor and the needy. Verse 8 might be the ancient equivalent of predatory lending and greedy development and gentrification. They should have been opposed to these things, but instead they forgot they were pilgrims on earth and not owners of it. They forgot that the Old Testament even preaches or teaches against perpetual ownership. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 23, the Lord says there, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. When they should have just been passing through, they're putting down stakes and widening their tents and assuming the ability to own what only belonged to God and in the process was taken from their neighbors. They were blind to their neighbors. Verses 11 and 12, they were blind to God. 
See there, 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. You see the picture? They get up early looking for strong drink. And they stay up late into the night just inflamed and intoxicated with wine. Verse 12, the music never stops. They carry on partying like it's the roaring 20s. Some of you will recall that period in American history where Americans thought there would be no end to the flow of prosperity. And then right after the roaring 20s came the Great Depression when they thought there would be no end to misery and poverty. Wine blinded Israel to the working of God. And in all their drunkenness, verse 12, they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hand. They, they would not pay attention to God's providence, to his working in creation. They only paid attention to their lust, and that made them blind to their God. Going from being blind with regard to their neighbors and blind to God, notice they're blind to the truth in verses 18 and 19. Look there with me at Isaiah's words. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with their rope, cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. You see that image there in verse 18. The cords of falsehood. They've made their lies into ropes with which they pull the, the cart full of iniquity or sin. And then in verse 19, they mock God. They, they can't see God's work. They don't know God's counsel. And rather than honestly seek it, they taunt and mock God. Let him hurry up. Let him prove himself. The Holy One of Israel, let him come with his counsel. The way of truth they have not known. Psalm 86, 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's not their prayer. They don't want to walk in the truth or to fear God's name. They have become blind to the truth of his word and blind to his character. So the next thing that they're blind to should not be surprising. They're blind to good and evil. You see it there in verse 20? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They've reversed everything. They've turned morality upside down. Some few of us are old enough to remember in photography, something called negatives. Those of you who have only ever seen a digital camera, you don't know what I'm talking about right now. A negative, that's when the black and the white areas, the dark and the light areas of a photograph were reversed until you went to a place called a dark room and developed them and sort of brought out the color and the, and the picture as it really was. The negative was not the true image. It was the reverse of the true image. 
And that's the way Israel sees the world in moral terms. Everything is reversed and intentionally so. Notice, they intentionally call things that are good evil and call things that are evil good. But isn't that the way it is when you want to serve your sin? We find ways of describing the sin as not so bad at first, and then sometimes as positively good. And we see people trying to tell us to do good and to call us back to righteousness, and all of a sudden they're the evil folks. Self-righteous and judgmental, always in everybody's business, right? It's the way sin just turns the world upside down on us. We see a glaring example of this in the news in the past week with the allegations against Judge Roy Moore. Listen, beloved, when people are prepared to compare someone's praying upon girls as young as 14 to Joseph taking Mary as his wife, they are calling good evil and evil good. They have exchanged light for darkness and darkness for light. The bitterness of sin they have declared to be sweet and the sweetness of righteousness is sour to their taste. And when the people who do that are professing Christians, we have reason to believe that the vineyard is bearing bad fruit. They're blind to good and evil, and next they're blind to their own pride. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Now they don't know God's ways. They don't know God's counsel. So it's no surprise, having rejected truth and having flipped morality on his head, it's no surprise they left to think that they're the only wise people on the planet. That all the wisdom that there is to be had is in their own mind. That's what is called solipsism. Fancy word. Just means you think you know everything. (laughs) Romans 12, 16 warns, never be wise in your own sight. We were not meant to live trusting ourselves and our own wisdom. This is why Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8 calls us to be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It would be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. But they don't listen to the word of God. And so Romans 1, 22 describes them perfectly. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Rejecting God's word while trusting their own wisdom made them blind to the foolishness of their pride. And lastly, they became blind to justice. Verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 tells us again about the the alcoholism. They are heroes at drinking wine. Imagine, they're not heroes on the battlefield, they're heroes in the bar. They're valiant men and mixing strong drink. They spend all their week from morning to night just trying to get bragging rights on the weekend. But then 23, who acquit the guilty, see, calling darkness light, for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. They are supposed to be law keepers, but they are perverters of the law. They should have obeyed Exodus 23 verse 8. For God's word says there, you shall take no bribe, for a bribe, notice, blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. That's precisely what we see 
They've abandoned God's word only to fulfill it. They have become blind and perverted justice. Now, in these six woes, beloved, I, we're just sort of walking deeper into darkness. Notice how we go from materialism in verse 8 to alcoholism in verses 10 and 11 to perjury in verses 18 and 19 to relativism, moral relativism in verse 21, to solipsism in verse 22, to bribery in verse 23. Once you you fall in love with things, and once you begin to live for pleasure, then just around the corner is self-justifying lying and a denial of the truth itself. And once you deny the truth, you'll only be able to trust your own made-up wisdom. And if you're the one who decides what's right, you'll eventually sell yourself for the right price, whatever you think it is. It's a sharp and disastrous decline into darkness and blindness. And once you start to eat bad fruit, it rots your insides. So what we have here with these six woes is a picture of a wicked and rebellious people. Not not a weak people, mind you. A wicked people. There's a massive difference between weakness, which we may all feel, and wickedness, which we should all avoid. There's a different significance between the kind of high-handed, stiff-necked sin that these woes are recording and the remaining sin and corruption that grieves the truly godly. See, God was not mocked by willful sin of rebellious people, yet... He is close to the brokenhearted and the contrite in spirit. God will not crush a bruised reed or, or snuff out a smoking candle. Yet, he will smash the wicked and break the arm of the unrighteous. It's a massive difference in how God responds to a weak people who genuinely love him and a wicked people who only profess to. The wicked will be judged. The weak will be healed. So, beloved, as God's people, we must be careful with our souls at this point. Listen, if it is the nature of bad fruit to blind us, even to the point of being tempted to call light darkness and darkness light, then we must understand something about the nature of rebellion. It is deceptive. It deludes, it deceives. And one of the ways it deludes and deceives is it will not always, rebellion will not always appear to us as wild and untamed and belligerent. The grapes on this vine were indeed grapes. They looked like grapes. But in nature they were wild, untamed. You see, rebellion, beloved, is very often quiet. It's very often kind outwardly and even compliant with external religious ritual. A person claiming to be holy can be quite wicked. Just think of the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day. They observed outwardly the religious law down to the finest scruple. But what does Jesus say about them? Inside they are full of dead men's bones. So we cannot stop with outward appearances. And things that sound like justice and righteousness. We must ask ourselves some questions. And the church today must face these questions. Questions like, which way is our soul headed? 
Does it make its way toward holiness and righteousness and justice in word or in deed? Or does it make its way toward self-deception and blindness and bad fruit? Does it make its way toward God and his ways, his counsel and his wisdom? Or does the soul of the church slide toward materialism, and alcoholism, lying, and relativism, and self-trust, and cheating? One leads to life. The other leads to death. You need to get a proper sense of the direction of God's people, of the church. And we need to get a proper sense of the direction of our own hearts individually, whether we are inclined toward God or whether we are mocking Him. But be assured, beloved, for those who are thinking about Christianity, for those who already call themselves Christians but feel some sense of conviction just at hearing this sermon and reading God's Word, be assured, beloved, that God is not mocked. One day, he will call all the accounts due. And we will have to give an account for our life lived in the body. The question is, do we want to give an account to God who knows all and sees all as people who have rejected him and rejected his ways or as people who have loved him and embraced his ways? The outcome is wildly different. Bad fruit blinds. But number three, bad fruit then brings bad consequences. We see this in the three sections of the chapter that describe God's judgment in response to Israel's wickedness. And you might think of these consolations or these consequences in three Ds. First of all, there's desolation. That's what we see in verse 9. Isaiah points out that the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. God has watched Israel's rebellion himself. He has seen it all. This is not hearsay to God. He's been a witness against him. And then the Lord makes a solemn promise. He's given his word to Isaiah that he will judge Israel for their greed and materialism. They like big houses? Fine. I'll let them build them and then I'll empty them. Beautiful houses left desolate without an inhabitant. And they like fields and farming. So much so that they've squeezed everybody out. They don't want no neighbors. Well, for every 10 acres of vineyard, there only be one bath or about eight gallons of wine. 10 acres of a vineyard produce eight gallons of wine. And for a, a homer of seed, about eight bushels of seed, there'll be less than, a, than an eighth of that, less than a bushel that comes back in, in produce as an, as an ephah. The more they plant, the less they get. Both home and land will lie desolate. They wanted to take the land from the poor, so God will take the land from them. But not only is there desolation, but there's death. Verses 13 to 15. I want to say what the Lord says. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. You may have a translation there that says star. And their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, this place of the grave, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem 
and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. You see that picture there? Death. They wanted to party all day and night. They, they wanted to be known for their partying, the valiant men of mixing drinks, the brave men of drinking. But they're going to go hungry and starve. And this is going to affect everybody from the noble men, the mighty men, to the, to the sort of common man without number. And you see there the, the grave, Sheol, yawning, opening wide its mouth, hungry for the delicacy of, of death. come upon God's people in an amazing way. Their pride went before destruction. Verse 15. They're totally conquered, killed off and carried off by foreign nations that God himself will send. That's the point of verses 26 to 30. Look at verse 26. He will raise a signal for nations far away. In the ancient world, they used to light a kind of pyre, a fire on the top of hills, and that would be a way of communicating a message to nations way away, this series of signals. God now himself is going to raise this signal and communicate to nations far away, and the text says he's going to whistle and call them. And they are going to come in great power, in undiminished strength. Notice what the text says. They're going to come quickly, speedily they come, verse 26, 27. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleep. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. They're roaring, it's like a lion, like young lions. They roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of a sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So vast and powerful will be the Assyrians when God brings them to conquer Israel and send them into exile. It will be death and devastation and destruction. See there verses 24 to 30 or 24 and 25. They've become so dry spiritually that they are quick kindling for the flame as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like the dust. And we're told why all this happens. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Rejecting God's word, they reject God's rule. God's protection, God's provision, and God's wisdom. Everything that God had done and prepared for them is rejected as his vineyard. They mock the one thing that would bring them life. And they suffer for it. It's a simple lesson here, beloved. Never mock the Bible. Never disrespect the Scripture. And never reject it. All who reject God's Word will be ruined just as God's word says. If you wish to make God angry, reject his word. That, that will be enough. 
And you will see God's anger as we see it in verse 25. Notice something about verses 25 and 26. We see a glimpse of God's anger in the past. See there, was kindled, stretched out, quaked. They were as refuse, scattered like trash, their bodies. But then we see God's anger in the present as well. See there in verse 26, his hand is stretched out still. His anger is hanging over them until they repent. And both are caused by rejecting his word. And his anger with an unrepentant people extends into the future. See there, verse 26, he will raise a signal. The coming exile of Israel into Assyria comes at God's hands because they have angered the God who made them. The Lord sends the enemy to put them down. This, beloved, is not an unfortunate incident in world history. This, beloved, is a divine judgment played out in time. This is the determined judgment of a sovereign God who pulls nations up and pulls nations down, who is not to be mocked or trifled with. And this is God's message, beloved, not to the pagan nations around Israel, not at this point in Isaiah. This is God's message to his Old Testament church, to the people who were known by his name, but profaned his name. This is God's message meant to sober God's people and meant as terrifying as it is to be an encouragement for God's people to come back to him. That's the way warnings like this work in the hearts of those who truly love God. They tremble for the terror of it, but then they turn almost instinctively and and then committedly back to God saying things like, search me, O Lord, to know if there's any unclean way in me. Praying to God, clean me with hyssop. Make me as white as snow. Renewing their commitment to God to to follow the Savior, Jesus Christ, wherever he would lead, to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what happens in the heart of those who are truly God's people and not those who are just imposters. And for those people in a chapter With 28 verses of judgment, there are two verses that shine like a fresh sunrise that give hope to God's people. You see it there in verses 15 and 16? Or 16 and 17? God's always sneaking hope into the hearts of his people. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. (laughs) This is marvelous. God's people have done everything but bring forth justice and righteousness, but don't think that means God's not just and right. God says, listen, in verse 15, I brought the proud low. I humbled them. I brought them down to the earth. But now in verse 16, I lift myself up. I'm going to exalt myself. I'm going to distance myself from my people precisely by bringing forth the thing that they have been so hard at denying. Justice and righteousness. Notice there, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. He is a just God. 
He will bring forth justice. No matter what we think we see in the world, we are called to act in faith knowing what God is going to make of the world. He is going to make it a place where injustice is abolished, where unrighteousness is defeated, and where his character flows over into all of society, where justice will mark his people. And notice this. He's not just holy abstractly. Did you see the, the last part of verse 16? The text says there, the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. But the holiness of God is not just something we think about abstractly as an attribute of God. And to what extent is it communicable to his people and uncommunicable? And, and to what extent is holiness all about separation? Wonderful. His holiness he is pleased to show, to prove in his righteousness. You want to know what it looks like for God to be holy? Spot and learn to see all the instances, however small or great, of righteousness being worked out in the Bible and worked out in our society. That's holiness. And any holiness that calls itself holiness with leaving undone righteousness is a false holiness. It is not the holiness that God himself proves. And so the people who love God rejoice at this judgment, not because it falls on them, but because it exalts God, because it shows forth his glory, because it proves his righteousness and his holiness, because it brings forward his justice. And in verse 17, because it results in the blessing of his lambs. Did you notice there? When God brings forth his righteousness, then shall the lambs graze as in the pasture. That little word lambs there speaks to the sort of tenderness and the youthfulness, the innocence really of sheep. It's one of the words that Jesus sometimes uses for his disciples. He refers to us as lambs, those who are truly his. Those who are truly Christ. Now, notice the aftermath of God bringing forth justice and, and God establishing his reign. The aftermath of that is we graze. We graze in all the goodness of our Lord. We graze in all the vineyard of our God. And notice the second half of verse 17. And nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Again, we are the nomads. We are the pilgrims. We're the sojourners. We're the ones who have no home in this world who are passing through. But it doesn't mean we have no provision in this world. Though we may never own anything great, yet we will eat the spoil of the rich. Says the Proverbs say, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. God will make this great transfer. And all those who have been passing through this world, feeling themselves not at home, will nevertheless feel themselves well cared for, well provided lacking in nothing. And so the coming of the judgment of God is good news to the righteous. Those who have trusted in Christ and those who design to follow him wherever he leads. Holiness is not a vague or abstract attribute as we've been saying. Holiness gets played out in making things right. God will do that for the glory of his name and his people will follow his example. And all who love God will rejoice to see him display that righteousness and justice. God's people are not the people who hate any talk of judgment. 
We don't wish to be cruel and uncaring about judgment. But we do know that our God gets as much glory out of his righteous judgment as he does out of his merciful salvation. He will be seen to be great and beautiful. And God's people, God's true people rejoice because of this little commercial of that final kingdom when we shall graze and eat with our true shepherd, our chief shepherd, the one who loved us and laid down his life for our salvation. This chapter is for the wicked and the righteous, for the righteous to rejoice and to enter into God's work of bringing forth justice and righteousness, and for the wicked to repent, to confess their sins, to trust in Jesus Christ, the one who is crucified for your sins, was buried and resurrected, who, yes, provides you righteousness before God, but who, if he saves you, has saved you to make you zealous for good works, to walk in the works that he has prepared for you. Do you want to live a life of good fruit? Follow Jesus. Do you want to live a life with a certain future of eternal blessing and eternal love? Follow Jesus. You want to avoid God's judgment and live in the light of God's glory. Follow Jesus. To not follow Jesus is the worst of the bad fruit. And his judgment will be unending. Follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we do praise you for Jesus the righteous one, the holy one of Israel, the Lord of hosts, our great God and King, who has rescued those who believe from a terrible judgment and has made us who believe, O Lord, members of your family, citizens in your kingdom, a holy priest. And we pray, O Lord, that those who believe in Christ would go on to bear fruit in keeping with his name that we would prove ourselves to be a fruitful, a fruitful vineyard that brings you glory. And we pray not only for ourselves, Lord, but in mercy and compassion, we pray for those who don't yet know Christ. That even this day, in the stillness of this room, in the quiet of their heart, in the searching of their mind, your spirit would convict them of sin and guilt, of unrighteousness and injustice. And your spirit would graciously grant them new life, and would turn them, O oh Lord, from sin and turn them to Christ in faith and with the resolve by your Spirit to follow Jesus in the obedience that comes from faith. Even now, this morning, even right now, we pray that you would save people for yourself and keep them from that judgment. Be gracious, O oh Lord. Be merciful, we pray. Let us heed the warnings of your book. Let us never despise your Bible but let us love it and treasure it and apply it more and more depending upon your grace as the day of your judgment approaches. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.